Welcome to the Knowledge Entrepreneurs Show, where we celebrate the innovators driving change in the education industry. At Edison OS, we've worked with over 500 knowledge entrepreneurs to turn their edtech ideas into profitable businesses. In today's episode of the Knowledge Entrepreneurs Show, we have Rebecca Rogers. Rebecca, a high-achieving standardized test taker with a perfect ACD score of 36 and a top 10% SAT score, embarked on a teaching career with a test prep company. Her commitment to education deepened during her time at Spelman College in Atlanta, where she earned a full-ride scholarship. While teaching, Rebecca recognized the need for greater cultural competency in standardized test materials. Subsequently, she excelled on a first MCAT attempt, placing in the top 10% and decided to pursue medical school. Yet, during her medical education, Rebecca identified a critical gap in patient understanding of science, hindering informed medical decision-making. Driven by a passion to prevent disease and enhance patient quality of life, she left medical school and founded The Black Roots. Rebecca's tutoring approach focuses on culturally relevant teaching within the hands-on learning framework. She collaborates with individuals, small groups, and universities to prepare students for careers in medicine. In addition, she runs a YouTube channel where she reviews topics commonly tested in college and on the MCAT. Hi, Rebecca. Good morning. Welcome to the Knowledge Entrepreneur Show. Thank you so much for taking your time out for being here with me today. Thank you for having me, Jack. It's a pleasure to be here. My pleasure too, Rebecca. Rebecca, first question, very easy one. What do you do currently? I currently teach the MCAT as well as prepare other um, college and post-bac students for medical school. Okay. Uh, is MCAT the only thing that you teach or uh, are there other things that you also do? No. So because the MCAT is a culmination of all of the prerequisites that students take in undergrad, I also help with students like all of the other prerequisites, predominantly biochemistry and physics, the upper division classes. But I also do help with students who are uh, more in the entry level. Right. So there's a certain uh, student path. Uh, and then, you know, MCAT is at the top of it. And but you start preparation, you help students prepare for the MCAT right from the uh, ground level itself. All right. So what are the different things like MCAT that is along the way to reach for someone to reach MCAT? So there's no specific college major that you have to have in order to take the MCAT or to be a doctor. So there are specific classes that most medical schools require you to have called prerequisites. And um, the MCAT tests most of those, the concepts that you would have learned in those prerequisite classes. So, for example, you have to take two years of biology, general, and um, some other type of biology, and you're expecting a college biology class to have learned about the structure of a cell, um, some things about molecular structure, as well as like evolution, Mendelian genetics, things like that. Um, So I will teach all of those kinds of things. That would be in biology. You also have to take chemistry, all like acids and bases, all of those kinds of things, as well as like biochemistry, some physics concepts. And so there's a lot of different things, as well as a lot of like data analysis and like understanding math skills and critical analysis. And so a lot of my students recognize by the time it's time to take the MCAT, there's things that they didn't anticipate would be the thing that's complicating their ability to do well in the MCAT. 
um, like, oh, I didn't recognize being able to convert between Millie and Desi would make a difference when I'm taking the MCAT. And it's like, no, it makes a huge difference, especially if you think about how that's going to be when treating a patient or um, if students are going into any other type of health professions, like public health or other things, there's always going to be a need to know how to do some things just on the fly. Um, at MCAT, you also can't use a calculator. In most education, you're able to use a calculator for a lot of conversions. And so um, I was just working with a student who didn't recognize like pH is literally just a log scale. So if you know exponents and know how log scale works, this is an easy question. But if you're used to just calculating pH with a calculator, you have no idea what's going on. Right. And so just talking with students through that process and getting them also motivated and adjusted to what it's going to take to be doing that for a long period of time, like recognizing these gaps in your education may be your fault, may not be your fault. Either way, there's still a gap that you have to get addressed in order to be the best physician for your patients. Right. I've got a lot of follow-up questions based on what you said, but I'm going to take a little detour. And then, you know, if you are training students, if you're helping students for their MCAT, uh, what uh, is what has your journey been like for you to come up to here and then, you know, help people with their MCAT? So I went to medical school myself. I took the MCAT back in 2013. Um, the MCAT changed in 2015, like significantly changed. Um, and so... I took it when they were still kind of experimenting for what the new MCAT would be. So I did very well on my MCAT and I started teaching the MCAT for the company that I used to work for. Um, I had also taught the SATs and the ACTs. So I have a longer history of just doing well and understanding how standardized testing works. Um, it, but when I started working for the company I was working with, I recognized that the student who is already like me, who is going to be excelling in school, who already was comfortable with standardized exams, that was tended to be the student who benefited the most from their programs and students who didn't know how to study, for example, didn't know how they studied best for themselves, didn't know all of the resources available. Those are the students who were still having a challenge and not necessarily getting the best benefit. Also students who were having to juggle full-time jobs or like a significant death in the family or other just life events, those tended to be the things that would derail students from being able to be successful um, on their actual MCAT. And so that became a stronger passion for me. I was still in medical school, so I was kind of juggling, do I want to be a doctor myself? I always knew I didn't want to actually practice medicine. I've been very passionate about teaching people how to prevent diseases for themselves and for also learning about how my own body works. Like when I was a child, I remember like looking at my arm and my at like the veins and being like, what is that? I know I can't like carve into my arm, but I want to know what it looks like and how it is. So like dissecting a human body and doing all those kinds of things has always been really exciting for me. And I am like, um, it's been really hot. I'm in Los Angeles and it was really hot last weekend and I was at a family event and somebody fainted and I was able to talk about like once that like everything had settled, I was able to actually help that person uh, because of things that I learned in medical school. So I'm still very thankful. Like that, those, those are always the reasons I wanted to go to medical school, but right. I was kind of towards the end of my experience in med school. I was confronted with okay, the rest of the way med school is structured is to teach you how to be a physician and how to practice medicine in America. And that's not what I want to do. So it just became out of um, 
sorts with what I was really passionate about. And at the same right. time, it just so happened that the pandemic was starting. I left med school in December of 2019 wanting to do public health. And then the pandemic happened. And so I really was able to sit and think about my passion has always been to like teach people how to prevent disease. And I'm also recognizing like, I don't want to be a physician, but understanding these skills and knowing all of the things that got me to medical school. Um, I also had a scholarship to attend medical school. So being able to like offset some of those student loans that really deter students from pursuing a degree in medicine or becoming a physician, I had a lot of experience that was really valuable. And so I challenged myself to build an MCAT curriculum where if I was studying for the MCAT again, recognizing that I had taken the old MCAT. So if I do, if I was going to med school now, I'd be getting a significantly different MCAT than what I had learned. So if I was taking the MCAT, what would I love to have to had studying as like a study partner, study uh, bonus to help me prepare that was reflective of like my life experience and not the life experience of like somebody who lived in 1600s England. Right, right. Rebecca, you, you know, you just made it sound very easy that, you know, you just uh, transitioned from doing your medical course and, you know, into becoming somebody, you know, who built the curriculum for the new MCAT and started teaching. But could you uh, deep dive into your thought process before, you know, you made the decision to kind of get into teaching from what might have been a very different career path, right? Because you join, obviously, I mean, even though you say the things that you said, that you've always been interested to teach people and prevent people from getting diseases, if you got into medical course, it's not that you decided that I'm going to quit uh, or, you know, leave the course in between and then get into teaching, right? So that must have, there must have been some changes in there. So if you can walk us through what made you leave um, and more importantly, uh, how did you decide that, okay, teaching is what I'm going to do and how did the transition happen for you? So my medical school experience, I think all along I didn't understand how much medical practice in America is also based on like laws and legal practices and things like that. And I think something that I'm really proud of my friends who are residents are uh, participating a lot in um, is like unionizing and creating different contracts for fair pay for residents and for other physicians associated with hospitals, as well as nurses and all of the other health care like people providing healthcare in whatever aspect, even janitors and people in the cafeteria, like advocating for equal pay because of how much it's costing the American system for healthcare. Just the way it's structured is not the way my friends who are doctors, it's not the way they want medicine to be practiced either. We're all very passionate about preventing diseases and not having this impact potential generations in some spaces because of these uh, health outcomes that we are experiencing. And so I'm really excited that like people are making that change. But I recognized for myself that like, that was not something I wanted to juggle. Like I, everyone has a way that they have to contribute to the system. And I recognized that for me, Teaching was way, I was way more passionate about teaching people how to get into medicine than about like working with any healthcare systems to advocate for equal pay. Like I had done that in medical school. I was associated with um, like, there's a 
organization, I guess, called White Coats for Black Lives that was started while I was in medical school. I helped found that chapter at my medical school. And we've done a lot to increase like advocacy and things around that nature for healthcare systems. But I recognized from that experience that that was something I didn't want to do anymore. I right. like when even when I was applying to medical school, I had done research like in a lab. And when you're applying to med school, you have to talk about your like three of your most significant experiences and how that has shaped what you want to do in the future. And I talked about one of my lab based experiences really being one of my most significant experiences because it made me recognize I don't want to do research. <laughs> and I think that a lot of times we think that a significant experience has to lead towards something we want to do. But I'm really okay with having really significant experiences that affirm this is not what I want to do and being able to pivot and change my life and not being stuck in what that is going to be. Um, I, When I was in med school, it was a lot more difficult, I think, than other things that I had just pivoted from. It's not the same at all. Um, but, and a lot of that being like, I was carrying my own identity of wanting to be a doctor, like just what it holds in society, but also recognizing that I would have been the first in my family and a lot of generations who are interested in medicine. I would have been the first to actually be a doctor. My, one of my grandmother's sisters talked about when she was an undergrad, she dissected a cadaver because she was interested in being a doctor, but she she's like 80 years old. So that wasn't going to happen for her. And other people, like other people in my family have had similar situations of just life experiences, the timing, whatever, they weren't able to accomplish it. So I really did hold a lot of like, I'm achieving my ancestors dreams when I was attending medical school, getting in. And so I think that really made the challenge more difficult. I think internally, like I also was dealing with a lot of like self-identity and I had to define myself. I started medical school when I was 22. I was applying to med school when I was 21. So I was barely an adult. And I know that that was also like a significant time for me to figure out who I was as a person. And so, um, yeah, med school is the first time that I went to therapy. The first time that I had access to a therapist as often as I needed it. The things that I was experiencing in med school were also like way more intense than I had ever experienced. So I was recognized the need to have therapy and how much that changed just me wanting to even try and not just give up, but keep pushing through. So yeah, I will say it wasn't an easy pivot, especially because of all the other things that I was dealing yeah. with. But I do, because I'd had experience with that. And I also recognize that like, I don't want my life to be just one thing. It made it more exciting for me to figure out what the next was going to be. Great. Um, thank you so much, uh, you know, because the reason I wanted to deep dive into this is an opportunity to talk to someone, you know, who's been, who was brave enough to pivot, you know, from a very, a situation, not, not a lot of people would, you know, do it, right? It's the odds, the percentage of people that do what you've done are way, way, um, you know, are way lesser than the ones who don't. Uh, and, you know, probably your perspective might help people out there, you know, who are in a similar situation. Just because you've started something doesn't mean, you know, 
very interesting that you had to point out what are the significant experience for you? Most of them, when they ask them, you know, what are the significant reasons that you want to continue? And then for you, that significant reason was exactly why you should not continue. So that is also a very significant, you know, that if you can recognize and identify that and take action at that point, I think it can be uh, very healthy for uh, one's life. Uh, right. So that's exactly. So that's why I just wanted to deep dive this point. So thank you so much, uh, Rebecca, for sharing all that you did. But um, now you took up teaching. Well, uh, you said, you know, you've always been passionate about teaching. Fine. But now we'll have to, you know, think about the monetary aspect of things, right? The money involved. And uh, just because you're passionate about teaching uh, doesn't mean that, you know, students are going to line up to you. So you have to kind of go out and sell yourself, which is one of the most challenging things for anybody who's a teacher out there. Uh, so if you can talk about how did you, you know, how did, today you are teaching, um, you know, with a certain amount of students and, you know, on your own, but how did you reach here? You know, what are the mistakes you did? What are the lessons you learned? How did you kind of streamline your entire thing to be in the position that you are today? So I think the biggest thing that was an advantage for me when choosing to leave medicine and go into teaching the MCAT specifically is knowing how much it costs to take the MCAT. And that's not just people arbitrarily creating these costs. It's also because it is very rare. It's a very rare thing to be able to do. It's a very niche thing. And it's also like all of the resources that I'm using to help my students are also expensive. So it's just, it is what it is. Right. And I think that that's part of, I have recognized that when my students know that there is an investment that they're making into their education, they're much more committed than when things are coming cheap or free, for example. And so I mentioned that I started this during the pandemic. And so I'm really like, I benefited a lot from having started in the pandemic. Um, a lot of people were interested in like donating funds um, to be able to provide to offset the cost of MCAT services for other students to be able to take the MCAT. So I was able to get some initial funding from that. Um, there was also because colleges were like shutting down a lot of their like outside budgets were in significant excess at the end of the school year and they had to use that money. So there were a lot of just unique opportunities that I was awarded or offered, uh, given to be able to like get myself started. Um, I also had worked at that point, I'd worked with people around like MCAT pre-med experiences for at least seven years. So I just had a lot of uh, relationships as well. So I think those are some of the things that helped benefit me getting myself started and make me feel that this is something that could actually sustain me as a business. Um, I will say one of like the biggest challenges has at the same time been the cost because I know that there are way more students I could help if I if my costs were different. And I recognize that that also means I would be working a lot more hours. And if I was working a lot more hours, I wouldn't be as impactful with the students that I'm working with. So it's a balance of the two. There is a lot of stuff like all of the students that I work with um, especially with my tutoring, I develop an individual study schedule for them. So that's just a lot of time. I don't have time to work with a whole lot of students. Um, I will also say one 
because of the types of students that I want to work with, a lot of them do have like a lot of other things that they're balancing. And so I've had a lot of challenges figuring out what actually is going to be the niche that works for like a, st- a standard, whatever that means, steady schedule for my students, for those who aren't trying to get tutoring, but just want some kind of structure, um, figuring out what that would look like, how to make that adaptable. Um, so that's one thing that I'm really appreciative of, like having educational technology systems where there is some service where it's like, okay, this is just the data. We can input this. Something comes out of this and that can actually serve my students where I'm not having to spend a lot of my time. So my time can get freed up to work with more students. And so that's something that is exciting for the future, but I have had to recognize and pivot. i have I didn't know anything about computer technology or computer science. Like I took one computer science in undergrad and I, t- again, tapped out, recognized this is not for me and didn't do it anymore. Right. <laughs> so like, like now moving forward, collaboration and working community, those things have really helped build my business a lot more. And I'm also recognizing because I have such a desire to make this automated and make this a lot more have a bigger impact, I'm able to work with larger systems and working with a lot more like universities and programs and potentially working within like even state systems to do some types of research. So there's just a lot of different opportunities that I'm given. I think because I'm allowing myself to stay flexible in what I'm doing, but also because like the actual there are a lot of students who need my services. And so I'm not in a space necessarily where I need to uh, do excessive amounts of advertising in comparison to a large a large company because I don't have the same, I'm not carrying the same number of employees. Yeah. Right. Yeah, yet. That's very, so Rebecca, now let's just back up a little bit. You said you took your MCAT in the year 2013. And when you came out of, your medical school, what year was it? It was. I left 2019, but I 2019. started undergrad in 2014. Or started undergrad 2000, started medical school in 2014. Graduated from undergrad 2014. Right. And you left your medical school in 2019. And 2020 is when you started your independent uh, tutoring service. Is that correct? Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, you also, you know, when you spoke about some of the things that you do to kind of make your business easy, you spoke about, you know, the technology that comes with all of this, right? I mean, because after the pandemic, it was pretty obvious that everybody are going to be doing it online. But even not that people went doing online before that, but people, a lot of people were, you know, just doing face-to-face or classroom trainings. But after that, it was just online. How was it? Uh, was it a bit a transition for you or were you accustomed to online uh, tutoring and online learning even before the pandemic? It was, it actually wasn't that big of a transition for me because I was used to doing a lot of virtual um, tutoring and teaching. A lot of my students just, I'd worked with high school and college students and a lot of them tend to prefer this type of a format as opposed to in-person. Some students do still like in-person and I think that it like having in-person interactions does help build camaraderie in a different way that virtual doesn't. So I do like the value of having in-person, I understand. But I wasn't, it wasn't as much of a shocker for me to adjust to virtual systems. 
my medical school also was structured where you could go to class in person, but they also video recorded every single lecture. So you could watch the lectures whenever you wanted. And I really appreciated that because I was never, I was never going to class. If I didn't have to, like class is not, for a lot of reasons, I wasn't going to class. And so I appreciated having the ability to just watch the videos when I wanted to and also have access to the slides. So asynchronous and individualized learning has also, has always been something I've been an advocate of, even in undergrad. That's kind of been what I I worked well with. But I also, my parents homeschooled me when I was in middle school. And so I have a very long background of I'm not doing this on y'all's timeline. I'm going to figure it out and do what I want when I want to do it. And so I think that helps me now have a better understanding of how formative education is beneficial and how not putting everybody at the same expectation, but really encouraging people's growth over time more than Mm. anything is what's going to make the biggest outcomes for yourself. Great. Um, for your business right now, you know, uh, what what does your tech stack look like? You know, what are the online tools that you most use? You know, or is, is it just been Zoom all through? No. So Zoom is how I meet most of the time with my students or Google Meet. Right. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's right. Um, the same version. Um, but my, like they have, I have like a fully comprehensive modules for students to access all of that's right now through google um moving like literally i'm in the works of making those a lot more i want to capture a lot more of the data associated with those and have um like actual questions where students are clicking buttons to answer so i'm getting i'm able to track what they're answering and just have a lot more in-depth ability to work with students um, I'm starting to work with something called Articulate 360, which I very recently started. So I'm very new to figuring that out completely. Um, right. But I know that that's something that's very helpful in terms of getting a lot more of that interactive formation for students. Um, but yeah, most of the content is housed within like the Google network and then I meet with students if we're meeting. Um, I host classes via Zoom, and then most of my class, like individual one-on-ones, are either Google Meet or Zoom. So you only do uh, one-on-one classes, or do you also do group classes, Rebecca? No, I do group classes. As I've started working with more universities, that's really become a bigger thing of doing um, classes up to like 20 students just like on Zoom. But I did used to, I'm still going back and forth about whether I will in the future, but I did used to offer um, like courses on my own for students to just like individually purchase. And so then I would host a class for that. Right. So when you say, you know, you work with universities, um, how does that work? So you're not getting your students yourself, but you've tied up with universities and the universities help you to get your students. Is that how it works? No. So it depends on the university. Um, some universities, I'll just go and talk to the school and then students will come and contact me after I All right. like put the conversation with the schools. But a lot of the schools have different grants or different programs with budgets set up specifically for these types of interventions. Most schools have some type of program set up for students to get MCAT prep. And a lot of schools are finding that those school, those, the programs that they're using for the MCAT prep are not effective. And they're like actually negatively impacting the students. 
So they want to try something different. And so the budget that would have gone for some other type of MCAT prep is I'm the person doing that now. Oh, right. Or we are the company, I guess, is more the statement. Right. So your company is tied up with universities um, to kind of do this is what I understand. Yeah. As like an independent contractor is technically how it is. Right. So there are two aspects to this, right? One is from a monetary point of view. One is from the ease of finding business point of view. So your ease of business has it become, you know, finding business has become easier because of tying up with universities. Uh, and uh, But at the same time, the amount of money you get to make is it slightly lesser than what you can if you do without tying up. So to answer the first question, is it easier now? Um, this is kind of my first year expanding significantly with universities. So uh, asterisk, probably, but I'm not sure yet. Um, I worked, I've worked, the most I've worked with at one time was three schools, but I wasn't doing direct MCAT prep for all three of those schools. Um, this year, an entire state wants to use my programs. Um, and so then all of the universities with all the public universities within that state would be using my programs as well as like three other schools that I'm like personally connected with different people um, also want to use my services. In addition to a lot of other just random students are finding out about me. And so they want to use my services. So this is, um, I went to a conference. This was the first time that I ever, have ever advertised myself at like my business at a conference right. <clears throat> that was back in June intentionally to like see what I could be doing for this upcoming school year. And so that's why I'm saying like, it's an asterisk. I have a lot of things in the works, but I also recognize back to the whole yet. I know that I'm about to have to expand my, who I like my employees and things like that to be able to sustain all of the increased um, interest and in oh. potential revenue. Right. As far as the second question about like, is the money different? I, yes, the money is not my primary goal right now. Um, I'm in like a very amazing, my family is very amazing in terms of just like helping and supporting, getting me, getting my business. Like everyone kind of sees where this is headed. And so like my bills are paid and everything's covered. And so as far as beyond that, that's kind of why the whole yet on, like, I know the um, laws around having employees versus contractors is just so, it's going to significantly impact how my business is able to function as opposed to how it's functioning now. But that is something that's on, that's on my list of challenges to figure out. This is year three of my business. So that's one thing that I really want to like, you know, figure out how I can do. Um, I'm also at a place with like social media, YouTube specifically, where I'm almost able to start making like um, revenue off of my videos that are on YouTube. And so then once I'm having a balance of like the amount of passive income with the things that I'm doing, I think that that is kind of the sweet spot where things will rebalance out. Um, but I recognize like this year is about to be a challenge because of all of the different hats I'm trying to put on at one time. But um, yeah, it's also an exciting challenge to have. Yeah. Happy problems. Definitely. Um, on your way to growth. Rebecca, I wanted to touch upon another topic, right? You said uh, because of tying up with universities, you sometimes teach 
20 students at a time and you've also done one-on-one, right? Um, obviously, there is a change in which you, you know, in the way you approach teaching someone who's just, you know, one person on the other side versus when there are 20 people. There are things that are not under our control. For example, you might end up covering more topic when you're teaching one-on-one than when you're teaching 20 people. But in terms of preparation, in terms of, you know, the adjustments that you had to make uh, for teaching one-to-one versus one-to-twenty, what what are those things? Uh, Has there really been any adjustments that you've had to make? If yes, what are those? And yeah, how did you manage to make those adjustments? So I think the biggest adjustment for my own personal just expectation of students is instead of having something that's preset that I'm going to cover, making sure that no student gets left behind. So really finding what is the space where like nobody understands. When I'm working with a university, I make it very clear to university, all of your students are not about to be prepared to take the MCAT by the end of this process. That's not my goal here. My goal is also for students to decide if they want to take the MCAT. When I'm working with 20 students, maybe about five or six of them will go on to actually take the MCAT between within the time I'm working with them. I would say within in like a year out of when I work with them. Most of them, it takes longer or they try, choose to do something different. And that's neither one of those is a bad thing. It's just what the situation is. But I recognize that for myself, that was something that really was a challenge when I was working for a third party was that I was set on like a preset schedule of what had to get accomplished every single time. And so I was recognizing I'm having to blow past this. My students have a lot of questions, but I'm not getting paid to answer my students' questions. I'm getting paid to specifically get through this agenda. So I have to do what I'm getting paid to do. And that's something that now I'm on the other side working with schools when like universities are running to work with me. They acknowledge that that really is the challenge when they're working with students is the students get frustrated and that's when students are dropping off. And so we're in alignment that that's, that cannot be the goal here for the, the, the schools that I'm working with. The goal is to figure that out of like, where is the bottom and start from there. Um, because the pandemic, as we acknowledged, really adjusted how students were learning, especially like chemistry, like sciences, there are a lot more gaps that I don't think the college professors are prepared to address at all. And so I think there's a lot more frank conversations. It's something I've had to adjust and address for like figuring out how to adapt my materials to be more foundational as opposed to challenging like actual MCAT preparation, but be a lot further back. But I think that's also part of why I'm really interested in creating a lot more data analysis of what, where are the gaps for students. So if I'm going through and talking about acids and bases, my, my image is that eventually it would be like a Wikipedia page. So you're able to click through and all of those tabs that I would have open when I'm reading one Wikipedia page is yeah. something that I can actually capture in data of like what students need help with. So um, that's what I'm working on. And that's, I think, something that's really encouraging to me is seeing, okay, I know where the gaps are to be able to figure out what to be addressing for students, but I'm also able to see the universities are a lot more understanding than I think even students when they're in one-on-one settings, the universities themselves are a lot more understanding of like, we have to take it a step back. And so I can have a lot more freedom in what I'm working with. 
one school that I was working with last year, I was also able to like develop a game for the students to have them be more engaged. And so I had to do a lot more work for myself to like develop a game and figure out how to make it appropriate um, content wise for what they were doing. But they had a lot of fun and they learned a lot by doing that. And so I'm able to challenge myself. I love that I'm not forced into one way of doing things. I can talk with the schools about like, if you want to add consulting, if you want to add a bunch of other things, this, we can do whatever else you want. It doesn't have to be one specific thing, but I do have a plan of like, if you just want for this semester for students to go through enzymes, for example, we can go through enzymes. I think this, it would take this amount of time to go through it. So do you want to give me your student Saturdays? Do you want to do this during the week? Like how, I know how to break that up, right? but let's figure out what actually works so we can make your students feel the most supported and not like they're forced into something else that's just like a drill program where they have to uh, comply with what is the expectation. There's not an expectation here. Wow. Yeah. Now, yeah, this is exactly, you know, what uh, I wanted to kind of, you know, ask you about because when there are so many students, different students are at different levels whether do you side with the students who are advanced in a way or do you side with the students, you know, who are a little slow? Uh, either ways, it's going to create a little bit of an Im- imbalance. There's no balance here as such, unfortunately. So, great. But you are choosing to go, you know, go to the bottom and uh, the advanced students will have to wait or get to your pace by themselves. It's not your problem. Yeah, which makes sense. And Rebecca, when it comes to, you know, um, tools, uh, the tech tools. Now, there are two things, right? One is you have your private setup, you have your private students, you know, where there is no third party involved in the way that you work with your student. It's just you and your student. But when it comes to the group classes that you do with the universities, um, universities have their own rules, data privacy and all that, right? Now, do you have to kind of, uh, you know, blend in with the tools that the universities want you to use when it comes to the logistical part, say, for example, when you're joining a platform, so you log into the university's platform, not the other way around. The students don't log into your platform. No, the students log into my platform. I don't have... I. Oh, right, okay. I All of the stuff that I house, like the student, uh, the universities will buy like a license for students to access for a certain period of time. And so they're not... Like the content itself isn't housed within the university. It's like still my proprietary information. And so the people have to log into my system in order to have access. Oh, great. Great. That's uh, great. Because uh, what I've normally heard is when you're working with, uh, say, a corporate organization or university, um, because they've already set up things, it's you're the one who's outside and the students are already within the system. So they expect the outside person who's a minority to kind of, you know, blend in with their tools. So that's where I was coming from. But in your case, it's, that's not the case. So you have your system uh, set up and they join your platform to access your uh, content and stuff like that. Got it. Yes. I think one thing that might be different is that this is completely separate from the, what the schools would be doing for like educational purposes for the student. Like it's an extracurricular or some other, well, whatever right, kind right. of you want to call it. So I think for that reason also, it's just something else that they're logging into. And, um, okay, when it comes to, you know, synchronous 
training or synchronous classes you know you use zoom or google meet or whatever it is right now you told you spoke about your curriculum the content that you've created you know your proprietary content it's housed somewhere it's hosted somewhere so how does that work uh so do you just use your google drive or stuff a thing or you have do you have a learning management system or something like that um for the recordings of the classes we have recordings or any content that you know you the students may have to refer to after the classes if there is something like that worksheets submitting of essays or you know mock tests so most of that stuff is housed still within like the google i give students access like one specific google drive and then they're able to access most of that stuff i do have for students who are doing active like mcat prep there is like a learning management system where all of that stuff is housed most of my MCAT students, I don't have any actual, like I've already recorded the lectures for the students to be able to, or the videos for students to be able to watch with the slides, or some of them are interactive modules. I'm developing like them all to eventually be interactive modules, but I started with slides. So it's like a blend right now, but that is housed within like my own internal system for students to be able to access so I can like more easily track how much time they're spending doing specific things within that. Got it. Got it, Rebecca. Rebecca, I'm going to go back to the time that I was reading your profile. And then uh, I had a question, you know, you specifically said you teach culturally relevant MCAT. So what do you mean by that? So one thing that I've recognized when I was going through science, my science, my own scientific education is that the science analogies, especially did not relate to me at all. Like they were talking about like, the plum pudding model of an atom, that plum pudding sounds disgusting. And I don't like, that doesn't help me understand what they're even talking about. So like talking about the plum pudding model of an atom helps me none. And I recognize like, there's so much science that like, for some person, there's logic to this. For me, this is not logical. And so I'm not understanding or memorizing this because of like, the like schematic or whatever. I need a random phrase to help me remember this. And so like, if we're talking about uh, the types of amino acids, instead of saying histidine, lysine, and arginine are the basic amino acid acids, the one letter abbreviation for histidine, arginine, and lysine are H, R, and K. So I was just sitting and thinking like, we could also say hoes, ratchets, and Kardashians are basic. And I'm going to remember that every single time. But that is culturally relevant to my right. life experience. I'm never remembering, never, never remembering the words histamine, arginine, and lysine. And there's nothing about those words that differ from any other amino acid. It's not happening. So I really challenge myself to be like, okay, well, if I'm going to teach this to students, I need to be able to remember this on the fly for myself. Right. And so how do I make this easy? If we're talking about the periodic table, how do I remember trends in the periodic table? Mean Girls was one of my favorite movies growing up. And it is a cult classic. So I re- I recreated the cafeteria scene for Mean Girls as the groups of the uh, periodic table. So I have the tre- I have all of the different commonalities of that. And that helps me remember it. And my students are always talking about, I'll like catch them, I'll ask them a question and they'll like answer the question using one of the analogies that I made. And just that just helps me recognize again, like this is very effective. And they'll often talk about like, yeah, no, the only room, the only reason I understand this now is because you gave me that. So that's what I mean by culturally relevant is just making it, okay, the way science has always been developed is 
by understanding the natural world. So like, what is the natural world today? And how would we make science if we could do that? Right. So Rebecca, now that means when you say you do culturally relevant MCAT training, your audience are mostly African-American people. Is that what it is also? Or do you also have a mixed set of people? Now, how do you deal if it becomes mixed? I do. I would say most of my students are African-American, but I think that that's also by default of having predominantly worked at schools in the South and HBCUs, not only HBCUs in the South, but some are HBCUs and some are in the South. So I think the combination of those has really transitioned to that being my demographic. But I don't think that, like when I say culturally relevant, my life is a Black experience, but the the things are not, the analogies are not just based on like my own life experience. Um, That is something that I was having a conversation about working with a school in the Northeast, a school in the Northeast, where obviously all the students are not going to be Black, the predominant majority of the students aren't. But they recognize that, again, for similar reasons, their students have not been able to use any of the other major uh, third-party companies to help them prepare for the MCAT or even prepare to prepare for the MCAT. And they need something different where the students feel more represented. And so for me, this is more about just making, also challenging students to see that how they can represent themselves within science, whether that becomes their research project that they're doing for the rest of their life, or if that just becomes the thing that they become passionate about when they're doing other things within science, being able to see how Oh, okay, I see this pattern here, but then I'm asking you a question about how does this apply somewhere else for you to connect that to your own life. Right. Rebecca, when you explained what you actually mean when you say, you know, you do culturally relevant MCAT uh, training, it makes a lot more sense. Now, which, you know, uh, makes me think of this question. So aren't people already doing culturally relevant training that you have to like kind of specifically mention that you're you're doing culturally relevant MCAT training um when you say training are you talking more of like training for teachers or no I mean uh, no 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 MCAT so when you're teaching you know students you know you say that you know you are you're like a culturally relevant MCAT teacher or a coach whatever you want to call it right what I mean is no not the teacher training I'm talking about the students that you're teaching so, uh, so a lot of the students don't get to experience, um, you know, something like you said, like the example that you gave about HRK, right? So the, uh, so there are you mean to say there are not a lot of people like you in that case. So they are still following the plum pudding model of uh, Atom. Yes, and okay. that's something that um, I think people, because we think science is objective, we think that there aren't analogies that are based on life experiences we think that there's not a space to also talk about like like cultural traditions so something that i love about like not just black culture but like most cultures in society is oral narratives and oral traditions to like bring analogies to yeah even even uh, when you say cultural it also means the generational right for example uh, if somebody is about 50 years old they're not going to be relating to gen z crowd so that also falls under what you're trying to say got it got it got it not just about the got it yeah it's not just about the race it's also about the time period that you're teaching it right exactly great so very interesting point right um uh, so when did it first hit you that you were being you were consuming or you were being fed 
not a very culturally relevant sort of teaching. So did that like uh, irritate you a lot when you were learning stuff? Did it start there? This yes. whole idea? Yeah. So I went to an HBCU. I went to Spelman College in Atlanta for undergrad. And so for me, I experienced a very culturally relevant education, even when that came to science. Like uh, most of my teachers made the analogies at least somewhat relevant. They were still, it wasn't amazing. I will say there's always room for improvement, but I will say in comparison to most of my friends who went to other, uh, whether that was like a big major public university, state school, whatever, or just an uh, other type of PWI, which is a predominantly white institution, they didn't get any of that. A lot of their teachers were predominantly interested in their research careers and research dollars and things. And so teaching was just something that was checking a box. It was not something that they were passionate about. Right. And so when you don't have passion, you don't have innovation for the most part. And so this was one space where I, up until medical school, had had a lot of experiences. And I won't say all of them because in high school, that was not, my teachers didn't look like me. Most of them weren't black, but they still were very passionate about teaching. And so my experiences in science were still very relevant to my life experience. We, I remember learning about like the different macromolecules, learnt, like doing potatoes and corn and things like that, that I was already eating. So I was still applying it to what was going on in my own life that once I got to medical school, I understood what all of my friends who had gone to PWIs and major schools were talking about when it came to my teacher doesn't care about teaching. They're just here to provide information and they're only getting paid by having research. So that's where their, that's where their passion really lies. And not even just because they're getting paid, but like they might be here because they want to do research and being a teacher is just part of what you can do in order to be here. So that's what they're doing where my teachers didn't really do very much innovation or creativity in the things that they were teaching. I also recognize that like medicine and science or medicine specifically, there are standards and structures and ways that it has to be done for legal reasons. And also just because of science and whatever that, that also contributes to the lack of interest and ingenuity in the way things are presented to you. But I know that that really challenged me to care. And I recognized that that was the biggest thing for me when I was, I ended up having to repeat both my first and my second year of medical school. And people would always, because of my MCAT score, I had like a 97% likelihood of getting the top 10 step one score, top, top 10% step one score. So my school was very confused that I was having academic difficulties just based on my trajectory to get here. And I was also very confused as to how we were here. And I had to sit and that's where going to therapy really helped me sit and be able to be like, oh, I just don't see myself represented here for one. And I also don't right. agree with the things that you're teaching to me. So because I don't agree with what you're teaching me and I don't understand why you're teaching it to me like this, I'm not retaining any of this information. So yeah, and you're throwing this much information at me. Of course, this wasn't gonna go well. That makes perfect sense now in retrospect. But in the process, it was very difficult. And so that really jump-started me wanting to do culturally relevant and recognizing what that even meant like for me to have culturally relevant education, why it was helpful for me, and what the difference made in my ability to be able to be successful. That brings me to, you know, when you do when you educate students in a culturally relevant fashion, 
um, is it getting acknowledged and has that started to become like one of your differentiators, Rebecca? Has it been, what was the first part of your question? Uh, is it is it being acknowledged that, you know, oh, you know what? Yeah, man, this is, there is some difference here, the way Rebecca is teaching. And uh, has that started to become a differentiator for you when you go and pitch your services? Yes. So I think that when you, um, going back to you acknowledging that I'm also able to like speak to the times, one thing that like Gen Z and Gen Y, so like millennials are really big on, like late millennials, because people kind of med school are kind of all over the place in terms of age, but yeah. they're really big on is self-care, motivation, and a lot of like mental, like being healthy mentally. Right and strategies to a, to be able to get there. And that's something that I can like personally speak to is how like that journey has been for me. But I think because I've had that own journey for myself, I'm able to also connect with my students from that level. And I've also provided some of my materials are just talking about like personal growth and development and strategies to overcome anxiety and things that may just prevent you, even if you study the most you could, like still might prevent you from being able to be successful on a test. I also outright address those things and acknowledge that that might be preventing you from being successful. I also will, because of um, like the cultural relevant aspect of like the black experience, I also like have my students acknowledge some of your reasons for not being where you want to be might not be your fault. And that might be because of racism and might be because of like the American system, but also might be because your parents had to work 15 hours a day for like other social economic reasons. There's so many reasons you might be where you are. Some of them might be in your control and out of your control. I think before you can actually address any of those things, you have to come to terms with what you can and cannot change and be able to actually understand and like accept the things you can't change. And that's something that like I know from personal experience made a big difference for me, but I also know is a huge part of the conversation, one school I was working with um, had talked to me about, we really appreciate that you talk to your student, you talk to our students about their why, like why they're here, why they're doing what they're doing and how they can maintain their why, how that gets them through the difficult times. Because we're recognizing that like research is showing, but also just culture and society is headed towards that type of understanding and those types of conversations. So that's something that I know also helps set me apart is being able to talk to that aspect of the times. In addition to, uh, yes, I do have the cultural relevance and my students do understand and acknowledge. I think it's more than anything, the feedback that teachers are getting from the students who are participating in my courses and my classes that makes this teachers like, there's something that she's doing significantly different because my students want to keep coming here. Wow, great. And apart from this change that you've brought about your teaching, right, being culturally relevant, uh, having to repeat your first couple of years, uh, the first year, the second year of your medical uh, course, um, what sort of an value add? Is that even doing any value add when you are addressing your students, are you able to, you know, kind of pass on some value where they may not actually have to experience what you experience for yourself? Absolutely. I think that I'm the type of person who I'm going to experience. My life is already set for me. Like I don't, I think often that 
what was going to happen was going to happen, whether or not your advice kicked in or not. And so I don't think that that's like full predestination. All that's a whole other conversation. But I do think that I'm the type of person who I'm going to do it anyways. Like my sister, I was like nine in the we had gone, we had done a bonfire on the beach and the sun, the sand was red hot, like literally red hot. And I thought that it was red because of the juices from the barbecue. And so I stepped on it and had blisters on my foot. And my sister told me, she told me multiple times, no, it's hot. Don't step. I had to find out. So now I know what red hot means. (laughs) that, I recognize that that is who I am. So I think that when I give a, when I talk about my life experiences, and I, I don't talk about it so much from a do this, do not do that, because yeah, this yeah. went this way for me. It's way more of just before I got to medical school, I didn't have academic difficulties. Like I can be real transparent about that. Like the only academic difficulties I had are because I was obstinate more than more than anything. I didn't want to do a paper, so yes, I got to be in a class, whether that's a difficulty or whatever that's for you to decide. But I didn't have, I studied 10 hours and I'm still unprepared for this test. That was never my experience before medical school. And so I think med school is a very humbling experience for me in like, this is how a lot of people have always been feeling. Like for whatever reason you've been able to adapt, but there are people who've never been able to adapt. And so they've always felt unprepared. They've always felt like they were trying, trying and consistently failing. And no matter how much effort they gave, they were always going to fail. So I think that it is a double, like, I'm very thankful that I had such a a strong academic um, experience coming into medical school because I think it got me the scholarship and it got me the MCAT score to be able to have, like, the academic prowess to actually teach students. But I'm also very thankful that med school wasn't a breeze for me. Because I think I'm able to actually relate to my students. When my one, I just had a conversation this morning with someone who some of the feedback he got from his students was that his students think that I got my score because of magic and determination, but magic number one. And so being able to talk about like, look, I've failed and I've overcome failure. And I really, really understand what it means to feel like you're not going to claw yourself out of this hole. I get it. So I can talk to you from that aspect as well as talk to you about, no, but these are also the things that like when I was in that, I had to like actually confront about myself of like how to better structure my day and things like that. Because it it wasn't just to pass a college class. And I don't even say just as like college is easy, but like compared to a medical school test, college is easy. So the things (laughs) that I was doing at one phase weren't going to serve me in the next phase. And I can talk about the adjustment, the life adjustment, the self-adjustment to be able to get there. Great. Now, just another perspective uh, before we move on to the next topic with respect to being culturally relevant, right? Now, you are exposing your students to receiving culturally relevant type of instruction uh, in the education that they're receiving, right? But uh, now when they move on ahead to an actual medical school, I don't think that's going to happen to them. So is that is this going to put them in more of a disadvantage now that they've gotten used to your style of instruction? Or uh, are you have you already kind of prepared them for what they're going to experience there? The lack of think, what you offer here. I think one thing in medical school that was challenging for me and is challenging for a lot of people is how little structure there is to studying. And I think that right. that's something I didn't really anticipate, like how much 
studying is based on just reading journal articles and Googling things and looking at other pages. Like science is very much so actively being developed. So we don't really have a whole bunch of textbooks. There are like medical textbooks for like the classic things, but a lot of even those medical textbooks are like very outdated compared to like the research that we have now. So it's, it was a whole lot of, I didn't realize how much I was going to have to be in control of my education here and how little resources I'm going to have. And also my teachers when they went to medical school, it was significantly different than what they're presenting to me. The amount of scientific knowledge has expounded to like exponentially. So the things, when they talk about this was a lot of stuff that they had to learn, it was maybe 10, 15% of the stuff we have now. And right. so I think there's also very few models of how to do it well or how to even figure it out that those are the things, if you can come into medical school having a better understanding of that, it's way much, it's way easier to get through even all of the stuff that you're still having to learn. If you know, okay, I'm going to have to learn all of the aspects of the cardiac cycle. And reading a textbook didn't help me at all on the MCAT. It didn't help me at all in undergrad. So I don't think reading a textbook is going to help me. What I do recognize helped me was watching videos. And there are so many videos available and things that are like more interactive to help you study. And one benefit of the med school, at least that I went to, is there are a lot more like med schools are a lot more tied to the federal government to get you through because of just funding reasons and just there is a public need to have doctors. So for a lot of reasons, like taxpayer money is invested into medical education. And so there's a lot different incentive to get you through compared to college that right. taking advantage of like having the learning specialists, having ability to go get the testing to see if you have learning uh, disabilities or learning like, different abilities on your ability to learn, like just learning how you study best. Those are a lot of resources you I uniquely had access to in medical school that I didn't have as significant access to before medical school that also really helped. But having the awareness of even what to do before you get there, I think is a lot of what my program does. And I also intentionally have gaps that I leave for students to have to go and be like, I don't actually know the answer to this. So I'm going to have to Google this before I can right. come back here. Like that is intended for students to spark their own curiosity. Great. Got it, Rebecca. And uh, probably just one more uh, topic to cap this all off, right? For the other teachers that are listening to just get them and give them an idea or a peep into what it takes um, does it take a lot of effort for you to make your delivery a lot more culturally relevant? And, uh, you know, if let's say there is, there's, there are a hundred units of delivery that you have to do for whatever you do, the programs that you do, have you, uh, covered all of these hundred into culturally relevant material or are you in the process of completing everything? What's that like? So I will say, how difficult is it? I think that that depends on how different the teacher is from the students they're talking with. So for mm. example, if you're 25 and your students are 20 and you grew up in Louisiana and your students are in Louisiana, it's going to be very easy to create culturally relevant education for your right, students. Right. If 
that's not the situation, it's going to be more difficult. And the more disparate it becomes, the more difficult it's going to be for people. And so I think that that how much you relate to your students already is going to determine that. I don't think that that means, okay, just because you don't relate to your students at all now, you can't create culturally relevant. I think that that means you need to go on TikTok. You need to understand what your students' life experiences are. I think that that's, and I don't even just say TikTok, you need to be on whatever social media, watching YouTube videos, go to a party. I, For whatever way that is for you to get immersed into what your students are going through, yeah. I think you need students it would benefit teachers to have a better understanding, to have, get a better understanding of their students, especially if they recognize, I don't relate to this at all. And when they're going and immersing themselves into those experiences, going at it from a non-judgmental space, but recognizing like, I'm here to expose myself to this life experience. I'm trying to get a lot more comfortable with exposing myself. Like I grew up with, like my bills were taken care of, but my parents weren't excessively affluent. But I recognize that some of the spaces that I may be in in the future are going to be excessively affluent. And I don't want to feel uncomfortable in those spaces because then I'm going to look like a sore thumb. And so I want to expose myself more to those experiences to be able to feel comfortable around that. And also when I'm having those conversations, it feels natural and it doesn't feel like I'm faking it, trying to make it through. And so that's just one experience. If I'm one school or one, program that I'm trying to work with is heavily Native American based. I know some things about Native American culture, but I don't know nearly enough to create a cultural, to say that my program is culturally relevant for Native American experience. That doesn't mean that I can't do it. And that doesn't mean that it has to be me who's doing it. I can also outsource that. If I find somebody who's Native American who's like, look, let me take this over. Again, collaboration over trying to do it by myself, always. So if I can find other people who are more well-versed in that, I would love to have somebody who's advising me on how to do it better. But recognizing that at the if the end goal is to relate better to my students, I have to be honest with myself about if I relate to them or not and why I don't relate to them or where I do relate to them. Because there still might be parts of like my upbringing that relate to certain students. And so I can still start building cultural relevance from there. So I will say that about how harder to easy it was to do. As far as is everything culturally relevant? No, I don't think, I don't intend for my entire program to be culturally relevant because I still recognize I am one out of a whole lot of scientists who aren't doing what I do. And so my intention here is not to like make students live in la-la land. It is to get students to recognize how they can fit into science, how they can make science more culturally relevant when they're doing it for themselves too. And so if that means they're writing research articles where the articles, they're recognizing the audience is not going to be the readers of the journal article, but it is going to be the patients who are experiencing the, disease, the yeah. disease that they had the research on, how do you need to make that culturally relevant? What does that mean? Challenge yourself. Make your own niche where you can have cultural relevance. But I recognize that like that's not the world that I live in. So I don't want to ever make students feel everything is going to, you will ever be in a space where everything will be like this. Yeah, great. Rebecca, um, I, so thank you. We'll stop here about the the conversational podcast thing. I think there's not much uh, that I've left to ask you uh, at this point, at least. 
uh, well, if I sit down and reflect upon our conversations, I might get a lot of questions, which I'll probably get back to you for a part two, maybe. Uh, but what I think right now, I I uh, found a very interesting topics that, you know, we can make some sort of listicle content. Like, say, for example, uh, the first thing that I have in my mind is three reasons why teachers should try and make their teaching culturally relevant. You know, if it can be like concise and crisp. No, I'm just uh, trying to uh, get in the questions and then probably you can take some time to kind of organize your thoughts. And uh, if it can be like concise and crisp, it'll help us, you know, put out nice viral reels because that's our intention here. Uh, so this is something that I have in mind. Do you uh, have anything? Oh, another thing that I want for uh, from a teacher's point of view, from a business related point of view is you must have started with just one student, right? Um, now, let's say uh, the maximum number of students that you touched, private students with 10 or 15 or 20 at a time. So what what are the three things that Rebecca did to grow as students from 1 to 20 or 1 to 15? Some things like that. So th these are the lines in which I'm thinking. And maybe I'd like to ask you another question with respect to tech. What what is what is Rebecca's online teaching? What does Rebecca's online teaching tools compose of? Uh, you know, it could be paid tools, free tools. You know, you can say that, you know what, I use Zoom for this, I use Google Drive for this, I use so on, so on, so on, so on. So these are three things that I have in my mind right away. If there's anything else that you want to add as part of, you know, which you think might help with your marketing, please feel free. We can have as many uh, such topics as we want. Okay, I'm just writing down. So the one of the topics was three reasons that teachers should have cultural relevance or integrate more cultural relevance into their teaching. Yeah. Um, one was three ways that I grew my business from like one to working with multiple students at a time. Yeah. Um, a third was what are my tools that I use to make my business happen? Yeah. These are things that I came up with. If yeah. there's anything that you feel that, you know, you can add, uh, you know, you want to share, please feel free. I mean, like we can have all, all of those. I think three challenges to developing cultural relevance like unexpected because i think that that's something people like three aspects i'm trying to figure out how to phrase like talking about the need to discuss self-growth like how much self-growth is part of culturally relevant education and how much that impacts um right. what do you can you is there any way that you could think of how to phrase that question you're saying how self-growth is an important part. Okay, yeah. Uh, how does uh, culturally relevant teaching impact a student's self-growth? Okay. Is that what you intended to... Like, what are some unanticipated benefits of... Like, Unintended benefits. Yeah, 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 yeah. Absolutely. Okay. I think that... I'm trying to think because we have four. I'm trying to think if I can think of a fifth. Sure. But I'm also... You, you can you can you can totally come up with something to you know it can totally be a marketing material for you you know like if you want to highlight why students um you know can come to you if you don't want to put it that blatantly or you know that on your face you can if you i don't know what's your style so uh yesterday i had a guest uh you know every five minutes the guest was going off on promoting that sort of thing <laughs> <laughs> because I'm so small right now as a business, I try to walk a fine line of make of getting new client. Like, 
I don't okay. want to get overwhelmed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, like, yeah. I'm trying to decide like how much actual advertising of what I do I want to say, but I also like want to acknowledge the like real benefit of what I'm doing. So mm, I'll do like three cheap ways to get MCAT prep or not MCAT prep, like three budget friendly ways to study for science. Perfect. That's that's awesome, actually. Anything okay. that's got to do with cost-cutting is always a hit on social media. Yeah. Great. Cool. Ways to study. Okay. So, three reasons for culturally relevant. Um, okay, I can do the first one. Okay. Uh, you can go. Okay. So, three reasons that culturally relevant education is helpful for students or why teachers should develop culturally relevant education the first one is because it makes students more engaged in the process of learning, which makes it way easier for teachers to teach. And the second one is that it makes students more able to see themselves in the future, um, see themselves impacted in what they're going to do. The third one is that it makes it more fun for the teachers when the teachers are able to talk about their own life experiences and incorporate their own selves into what they're teaching, it makes it more fun for the teacher as well. Whenever you're ready with this second one. Okay. Three ways to grow my business from one to 20. Oh, whatever it was for you. It could yeah, have been 20, like 30. Three ways to grow my business bigger, to get make my business bigger. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Like you can, you can, you can put it like this three ways that I followed to grow my business, like something that you actually did, because that's more connectable for people. Okay. So th three things I did. Yeah, you did. That's it. Yeah. Perfect. Whenever you're ready, you let me know. I, I just have to do a click. Okay. I'm ready for this one. Three things I did to grow my business. The first thing that I did was connected with my already existing network to see if there were any opportunities for growth. The second thing that I did was went to uh, conferences that I think aligned with some of my potential um, customers and marketed myself there. The third thing that I did was connected with people who were already in my network who were doing things that I needed to be able to grow my business, but I didn't necessarily have the budget to afford to grow my business yet. So finding uh, favor for favor to get some things done. Awesome. Yeah, two done. Third one was the tools thing. Am I, am I yes. Yeah, this is not limited to three. Okay. <laughs> I'm... I'm I think I have three, so oh great. Still works. But you just um, you, and are these the tools that the students are using and the tools that I use to develop it? What tools? No, 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 no. Uh as a teacher or as a test prep coach or as a test prep teacher, these are the tools that helps me run my business smoothly. As a test prep teacher um and a coach, some of the tools that help me do my business more efficiently are being able to track my students through a Google Drive. Um, also providing my materials in Google Drive as well as through my own um, platform and my, my website. I also use Zoom in order to be able to contact my students to have our virtual meetings. Um, email, obviously, to be able to communicate with my students. And I also like to use Anki, which is a, a platform to be able to do like different flashcards. So I help my students avail develop flashcards to be able to review their materials um, more in the future. 
Um, I use WMC materials, which is the Association for American Medical Colleges. I believe that's the name of it. Um, I use them for the actual MCAT content for students to practice with. Great. We've got two left. Okay. The three unintentional benefits. Or I'll say unexpected benefits. Yeah, sure. What are using cultural competence. Okay. Are you ready? Mm-hmm. Three of the unexpected benefits of using culturally competent and culturally relevant education. The first one is that students are able to have more of a self-growth identity and understand how much they can develop from where they're starting. The second one is that students are able to also increase diversity by putting themselves into what they're doing, um, whether that becomes them teaching it themselves or whether that becomes them doing research, they're able to do stuff based on their life experiences and understand the value of adding their life experience to what's already being done. A third unexpected benefit of using culturally relevant education is that it's way more fun. And I think that we often think about the outcomes and don't think about the process itself but the process is so much more fun for everyone involved because you're able to do it in a culturally relevant manner. And And then the last one is three budget-friendly ways to study. Okay. Let me know when you're ready. YouTube University. Yes, I'm ready. Okay. So three budget-friendly ways to be able to study. The first one is YouTube University finding whatever topic that you have, just Googling it on YouTube and finding a video, five videos, 10 videos, figuring out which video you like the best and just watching YouTube to get it. The second one is friends. Using your network of people who are also, maybe they're studying the same thing you're studying, maybe they're not studying what you're studying, but using them to be able to get yourself through. And maybe that's you write a paper for your friend being able to help you study for your biology test or whatever form, negotiating with your friends to make it both make you both more successful. And the third one is using a lot of the free tools that are available within whatever, uh, if that's your school system or whatever other program you're using to study, using the tools that are already available to you that you might not be be aware of. So if that's having access to a whole lot of journal articles for free because of your access through your school, using all of those things that are already available to you that you might not think about. Okay, Rebecca, great. Thank you so much. Uh, this is this is the first time that we've done something like this. Uh, so you're the uh, probably your podcast is going to be out the fastest because the distribution team is going to be so happy that they don't have to sit down and watch a podcast and then you know extract. Oh, can you please ask them to like organize something for once? You know. <laughs> so trust me. I couldn't have guaranteed any of my previous guests that, you know what, I can have five proper reels or uh, carousels of yours out on the social media. So thank you so much uh, for making this happen uh, because uh, I need to give it to you and I need to appreciate you uh, because this was ad hoc, right? A lot of people may not be very comfortable doing this. Uh, so thank you so much for doing this. Like I thought uh, you're probably going to take a little bit more time, but then you're like, ah, I don't know, I can do it. You just took 20 seconds, I think, between each of those topics. That was awesome. Uh, that made yeah, it so much more you. easier. But uh, yeah, I'm not sure if I can expect the same from my future guests. So yeah, mm-hmm. I'll have to kind of, you know, calibrate a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> okay.
I know that was fun. This is something when uh, you do med school interviews, a lot of times you have to have things quickly prepared of these types of questions. So yeah. I have a lot of experience in practice quickly being like, Oh, wow. Three? Okay. I, like intentionally don't say the three or like the best three. I just say three of. Because you be like, yeah. you know, give me a list of 35. These are just three that I thought about right now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. And, so, um, and these short form contents need to be kind of specific and, you know, targeted. Um, and hopefully, yeah, let's see how it goes. Okay, Rebecca, yeah. thank you so very much. It was a pleasure doing this with you. Um, it was a pleasure as well. And uh, what you're doing is awesome, especially the cultural relevant thing. Uh, I think you need to you need to kind of make it huge. You, I mean, forget the MCAT. You can just become huge just as a culturally relevant just talking about the importance of being culturally relevant as a teacher is a huge thing, I believe. And um, although a lot of teachers may be doing it without them realizing, but um, giving teachers perspective as to, you know, you told, you spoke about the three unexpected benefits students can get from being like that, right? I think that is uh, like awesome. Yeah. Well, thank you very much. And it was such a pleasure doing this. This was really fun. So. Thank You're a very good podcast host. Thank you so much. Thank you. This podcast is brought to you by Edison OS, a no-code edtech platform to operate an online education business. Knowledge entrepreneurs can use Edison OS to sell online courses from their own websites, manage online masterclasses, launch mobile learning apps, sell online practice tests for competitive exams, run online learning communities, digitizing their offline tutoring business, use it as a learning management system, and a lot more cases in the domain of knowledge commerce.